Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with longtime Sports Center anchor and voice of Sunday Night Baseball, Carl Ravage. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a longtime Sports Center anchor, and currently is the voice of Sunday Night Baseball, ladies and gentlemen, Carl Ravage. Carl, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, Booney, it's great to be on with you, man. It's great to be on with you. I, every time, every time uh, I get a minute since you called to say, "Do you want to do this?" I, I keep going back to. The great Mariners teams of the uh, of the late '90s and the early 2000s—they're they're a bit of a blur for me. But I always uh, I always go back and, and think of of how great those teams were and the impact you had on them and the Ichiro phenomena and Randy and Griffey and A Rod and Buner and uh, Edgar. Like that was uh, all those years were prime time for Mariner baseball. And I you know I know you played in a, a few places, but I associate you with those great teams. Yeah. And that's kind of always home for me. It's, it's kind of nice, Carl, and, and you're getting to see it. You got a front row seat doing Sunday night baseball uh, Mariners for the first time. And, and I went out of limb before the season started. People asked me for a prediction about the overall baseball season. And I said, the Seattle Mariners will make the postseason for the first time in 21 years. I saw what they did this off season. Yeah. Uh, they didn't get off to a great start, but I was up there a month or so ago uh, doing some things with the Mariners. And that city, it seems like they're starting to have that feeling because you know what it was like in the early 2000s in Seattle. It was a madhouse. And so much fun for us as players. But but since the early 2000s, it's kind of, you know, there's been no winning going on. So I'd, I'd go to Seattle time to time and, and it just wasn't the same. And I'm starting to see that that passion come back. And it, it's pretty cool uh, walking around that city, seeing people excited about a team that, that hasn't been very exciting for a while. Yeah, I mean, look, this time of year, the elephant in the room is, of course, uh, football, college or the NFL. And many of these cities that have uh, Major League Baseball teams, if if you're in it, then you keep your fan base. You have to splinter it a little bit, but you keep it. There's always an eye on baseball. When you're in those other cities, it's it becomes wait till next year. Seattle has had wait till next year for a long time. And now, you know, you're looking at Logan Gilbert and you're looking at the offense they have and of course, we saw Julio really burst out of the national scene during the All-Star break and the Home Run Derby. You know, Service is a really, really good manager who, during down years, probably never gets appreciated for what he was able to do. I mean, in a lot of ways, David Bell and Scott Service remind me of each other. I think Bell's a pretty good manager, and he's on a team and an organization that that has yet to kind of put it together. And Seattle has has been running in a horse race with Cincinnati for a long time, just sort of paralleling each other. And they found that they found that next year, they got the right pieces. They've added to it beautifully. And yeah, I, I look, there's no, there was no louder building in baseball. And this goes back. You think about the Oh one world series with Arizona and New York and the bizarre endings to uh, games four and five in New York. I thought Yankee stadium was coming down compared to what we saw in the kingdom. And I know it's a new new ballpark but the kingdom was the loudest building i've ever been in um and that speaks to the you know the passion the seattle fan base has for baseball and and i'm delighted it's back 
Yeah, it's going to be cool to see see how they do this year. Uh, you've done so many things, Carl, in the world of sports. Um, now you're doing Sunday night baseball. It's that one night of the week uh, when you're the only game in town. All eyes are on you. And, and today's, you know, we're, we have so much at our fingertips. We can watch anything we want anytime just on our phones. But Sunday's still that night where – it's the only game all the rest of the schedule goes off during the day and all eyes are kind of on you, myself included, you know, as a fan of the game now, like, I wonder who Sunday night baseball is. It's, they always try to get the, the best matchup that, that's going to bring the biggest crowd. Um, how's that? How's that so far? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I love it. Um, I'm certainly appreciative of the opportunity. It's something that I've, I've kind of had my eye on since I've been at ESPN and I got there and, May of 1993. So next next year will be 30 years. Um, and look, I've I've been through the baseball tonight years when it was the the show to go to because we didn't have RSNs and there was no other place, you know, to get your Mariners highlights if you were on the East Coast. That was it. It was where you got your McGuire and Sosa updates during the home run race. It was where you watched Griffey set records. So uh, I've sat in a chair where I know the attention was really based solely on ESPN for baseball. And then, of course, uh, the MLB Network showed up, and you, you look for those platforms where you do realize, like, this this is it. And, yes, Sunday Night Baseball is absolutely that platform for baseball fans. So I, uh, I consider myself really fortunate. I love the team we have. I think Cohen is really, really smart when it comes to pitching. I think he's, he's going to give us more when it comes to September and October baseball because – the guy's carrying five rings around with him. He knows what that's all about. And Eduardo, and I think you know Eduardo, Eduardo, Eduardo comes from a, a family of baseball just like you did. I don't think his grandfather played uh, like yours did, but his dad obviously is a Hall of Famer. And uh, his knowledge of the game and not only that, his connections within the game uh, are, I think, unsurpassed and unparalleled and Golly, I mean, the guy knows everybody, whether you're wearing a uniform or not. Any ballpark you go into, any restaurant you go into, any hotel you go into, any cab you go into. Like, he knows everybody, and that's been a huge asset for us. So I love the group. I think Olney is terrific as a reporter. The producer is willing to take risks. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm grateful for ESPN for giving us the opportunity. I mean, we moved from, as you said, in the open sports center. Uh, anchor with Craig Kilborn and people like that, who I'm sure the audience today don't even know who Craig Kilborn is anymore. Um, I'm sure you do, but a lot of folks have come and gone over the years, and ESPN has provided different off ramps for me: college basketball, baseball, play-by-play, you know, college little league World Series, things like that. So I'm I'm grateful, and I'm grateful for their patience. Um, as you know, you build a team, which we have now on Sunday night. You got to give it a few years uh, before it peaks, and I think for the first year it's going really well, and I think it's only going to get better. Eduardo, uh, we were teammates uh, when I was with the Reds. Uh, yeah, what a great guy and and a great teammate. And you're right, <clears throat> he knows everybody. You know, as a matter of fact, we haven't had Eduardo on the show. We've had Pops on the show. Yeah. Uh, we've had Tony, but we're going to get Eduardo on there. Yeah, really knowledgeable guy. Good guy. I don't know Coney that well, just playing against him, but seems to really have a grasp. You know, coming from the pitcher's perspective, I always like to, do, to listen um, to their perspective because I know what I'm thinking as the hitter. And believe me, Carl, most of the time I'm thinking this pitcher's dumber than I am. So I'm going to, I'm going to figure him out. I listened to, you know, I played with Smolty for a while. Smolty has really good insight from the pitcher's perspective. And Coney, I think really 
come kind of come into his own uh, the last couple of years and is right there as far as the knowledge and the way he gives it to the fans. I think he does a great job. Um, you're born in, you're raised in Massachusetts. I want to hear about uh, Carl Ravitch as a kid. So Carl Ravitch as a kid um, was a kid that was never one who sat and watched a lot of games as a kid. I was, I was out what I like to tell my boys who are now graduated college and one of them's married, but I used to say, we're doing the runaround sports. We're getting out and we're running around. We are not going to sit at home and watch television. And of course this predated any type of, internet, let alone video games or computers or laptops. Like we, that wasn't part of the deal, but it was always, we're going to do runaround sports. So as a kid, Carl Ravage was a runaround guy. We, we would be out in the neighborhood. I had a bunch of cousins who lived on the street over, and we would take our bikes to Dwight's school uh, and play baseball. And if you only had, you know, 10 people, well, you can't hit the ball to right field or you can't hit the ball to the right side. And if you throw the ball to the pitcher instead of first base, because we're not going to have a first baseman, then you're out. Um, played basketball, soccer, baseball, tennis, uh, basketball for sure. As I grew up, Larry Bird and the Celtics were unbelievable. So that was my team. And I know I've had several conversations with your brother, Aaron, about the Sixers Celtics rivalry, which was great. Uh, we did not like Andrew Tony at all, although I will, <laughs> I will tell you, I used to go outside in the yard and try to shoot like Andrew Tony. He had a real unique sort of jump shot. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're trying things, you believe you're shooting the way that the, the pros are. And whatever I was doing that made me think it was like Andrew Tony, it, it worked. I'm like, yep, I can see why he's so good because this little, little shot of his where I I turn my hand, my my shooting hand, a little bit inward, so it sort of looks like I'm I'm pushing across the ball. Yeah, it works great. So I, I was either emulating Andrew Tony and hating him, or trying to emulate Larry Bird and loving him more than anybody. Um, cut lawns for a living, and in 1982, before the Celtics Lakers uh, NBA Finals, I think it was Game Two. I could be wrong on the game, but my buddy and I, we were landscaping. We stopped, got a case of. Uh, Budweiser beer and went up to Larry's house because we knew exactly where he lived. And it was it was a very modest house. It was right on a fairly main street, knocked on the front door. Uh, Dina, his wife, answered. We gave the case of beer and said good luck to him. And then we, we drove off. So that, that was sort of my childhood in Massachusetts. Huge Celtics, Bruins, Red Sox, believe it or not. Booney, my dad had season tickets to the Patriots and they sucked. They were the worst team in the NFL and given everybody's recent memory of the Patriots, it would make no sense because all they do now is win Super Bowls. But when we used to go, they were terrible. We, we would get excited when Steve Grogan completed a pass to Randy Vitaha or John Hanna as an offensive lineman was like our guy in a Pro Bowl. That's our guy. He's an offensive lineman. So things have changed dramatically, as you know, in that city, and they're getting used to winning championships and World Series, et cetera. But I grew up really as a, as a Celtics Bruins guy, and Bobby Orr and Larry Bird uh, were my two heroes. I have three signed jerseys uh, or signed items that I keep. One is from Bird, one is from Orr, and the others were from the years I covered Tiger Woods on the PGA Tour back when he was, he was everything in the late 90s. Wow, that's amazing! You bring up Andrew Tony. There's not too many people that bring up Andrew Tony, but as you know, as you know from Aaron. Now, Aaron's the, the true fan. I'm I'm not a true fan. I pretend to be, <clears throat> but I grew up. We grew up in Jersey, 
And, right. you know, when dad was playing with the Phillies, so it was. And, and you know how it is on the East Coast, especially. It's just a different sports world. And if you were from Philly or Jersey, you were Phillies, Sixers, Eagles, Flyers. Right. And Aaron is a true. I mean, Aaron, if the Sixers were to get into the finals, I'll guarantee you, Aaron Boone, if you put a if you put a GoPro on him or, or on one of his kids, he would be wearing a Sixers jersey watching the game. That's just how oh, yeah. he is. To this day, you know, you you know Aaron very well. You know that he's Mr. USC. I went to USC as well. I pull for him. I don't put the jersey I don't put the jersey on and play the fight song when I'm going to the game. He does. That's just the way it is. But you bring up Andrew Tony. It's amazing. Because I used to think I was Andrew Tony and I know exactly what you're talking about. Shooting like he did. It was almost like a he shot with two hands and he pushed it. But you're right. He, he had yeah. his. <clears throat> I used to, it and he didn't. And that right hand was at an odd angle. If you know, if you hold your hand straight out, you have to then tilt it to the left, and you would come across the basketball a little bit. And it, it worked, man. I remember shooting that way in in little horse games and three point competitions we'd have in our in our little <sighs> tee. I mean, we we lived at the end of a road, so you'd have a tee. It wasn't really a turnaround. But you'd have to pull in and, and, and turn fully right and then back out and go back. It's like a three-point turn. So we had a basketball net there. And, yeah, from driveways, et cetera. But Andrew, Tony, Mo Cheeks, Dawkins, the Joneses, Caldwell, yep. and Bobby, we, we did not like them uh, very much. But, boy, those were, <laughs> those were great series that they used to have. I, I, I used to take it one more. And Aaron used to tag along. He's four years younger than me. Yeah. But my yeah. group of friends, they're like, yeah, we, Aaron could come along. He used to announce our game. So when he couldn't play with the older kids, right. I mean, I, I'd be doing my, you know, my Andrew Tony and my kids, my buddies would give me a hard time. Boone thinks he's freaking Andrew Tony. We got to put up with this. <laughs> I used to do it in the winter. Remember that kicker for the Eagles, uh, Tony Franklin? He used to kick barefoot. Yeah, of course. Yes. We used to play games in the backyard, and I had a field goal post. And we'd score a touchdown, and then they'd be like, oh, Brett's got to kick the extra point because he thinks he's Tony Franklin. So <laughs> you, you to bring up Andrew Tony is funny. I've never had anybody bring him up before that, but, that, <laughs> but, but that's cool that you liked him. Uh, you went to Needham High School. Um, I think Phil Murphy. I think the governor of New Jersey went to, went to Needham High School. Uh, and then on to Ithaca College from 84 to 87, your, your communications major. Um, when you're a freshman going to Ithaca College, what are you thinking? What, yeah. what, are, you, what are you thinking right there? Like, what's yeah. on your mind? Where am I right. going in life? You know, I know what I was That's thinking good. when I was a freshman. I'm interested to see what Carl was thinking. Carl was thinking about how am I getting to the right classes? How am I going to navigate these buildings that I know nothing about? How's it going to be to be, you know, roughly six hour drive away from home? How much am I looking forward to that? But I mean, I'll take you back just a few years. When I was a junior at Needham High School, I was a soccer player. Uh, primarily, I played basketball and I played tennis at that point. Baseball kind of drifted away from me in high school. Uh, and I got into those other sports more seriously. Um, but there was a game that Needham was playing, and I was on a varsity as a junior, and, and I'm a right-hander, right-hand thrower, right-hand kicker, and I was a forward, and I had a ball coming directly to me on the ground with a fairly open net that if I one-timed it, and for those that play soccer know exactly what I'm talking about, and those that don't mean when the ball's rolling to me like kickball, I'm going to just kick it into the net and score a goal. And it was on my dominant foot, and it was the easiest thing in the world that I should have done, and instead – 
I decided to trap it, slow it down, move it to my left foot, which was really stupid. And it allowed a defender who was a lot bigger than I was uh, to close on me defensively. And when he did, uh, he and I both went to kick the ball at the exact same time. And he was just an awful lot stronger with his legs. And I felt my, my left knee kind of buckle when we hit the ball at the exact same time. And rather, you know, two, two forces meeting the same object, his was stronger. It pushed my knee back. And that ultimately led to a torn ACL, uh, which shut down my, my soccer playing days. Uh, I went to have some type of procedure done back then. It was almost archaic nowadays to think about ACL surgeries. I, I've graduated from three ACL surgeries to a partial knee replacement, and everything works great. But back then, when my knee got all messed up, I didn't have professional aspirations like the Boone brothers did. Uh, I just enjoyed playing soccer. Ultimately, I went into a guidance counselor's office soon after that, and she said, what is it that you enjoy doing? And I said, well, I really like sports, and uh, I like to write because I'm not a math and science guy. So she was the one that said, well, you like sports, and you like to write. How about communications? I said, sure, that sounds great. I'm not really familiar with the field, but I love it because, like I said, the runaround sports when you're a kid, I wasn't sitting there emulating you know, Al Michaels or Bob Costas or Vince Scully or any of those guys. And I know a whole hell of a lot of, of my peers. That's what they did. You know, even Aaron was was calling games. I never did that. It never occurred to me that I wanted to do those things. But she was the one that said, how about communications and Ithaca and Syracuse University and Northwestern and in uh, American University Um all had communication schools, and I applied to a bunch of them. Boston University did too, but I wanted to get away from Boston because I grew up there. So ultimately, I ended up at Ithaca with a great communication school. And beyond trying to figure out where the hell I was going on the campus and how I get from room to room, I also, as a freshman, remember going down to the communications uh, welcome sort of evening, which was, hey, if you want to get involved with communications, by the way, that's why you're at this school. You can sign up to be on the radio or work as a uh, as a set, set designer on the television shows we do. I mean, it's a whole new world for me. The extent of my communications in high school was as a senior, I, I wrote for the local newspaper covering Needham High School hockey games. And I'll be honest with you, Brett, when I saw my name in the newspaper, you know, written by, I got a huge rush. Like, whoa, this is wild. This is wild. You know, you can have your stuff published and and consumed read by other people that was a wild thing for me and that really jump-started the communications and the ethica thing and yeah I, I started on a local radio station on the campus wvic and graduated to the fm station and then graduated from uh, the radio to the television side there and that was that was the beginning of all of this you went on to binghamton university you got your master's yeah. And yeah, I, I guess, well, I guess you answered the question. What was your actual first time behind the mic? And did you prefer between the radio and the TV? Was there a preference? Yeah, I think I think I enjoy I think I right away felt more in love with television than I did the radio. Um, and again, it's funny how, you know, the world keeps turning. Uh, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough now to call a lot of uh, major league games on ESPN radio and playoff series on ESPN radio because after the wild card, ESPN loses the television rights. So we don't have them. So I've been able to get into the radio side and there's a lot of aspects about radio that, that are 
are really more enjoyable than television. One of which is you can wear a golf shirt and jeans and go call the game. I mean, it's just, it's just far laid back than it is on television. Um, but first time behind the mic was for that WVIC radio. It was an early morning sports cast. I don't know if there were three people that could even get it, but you went up, you, you got up early, you walked down to the studio at four 30, you know, you're a college student. It teaches you a whole heck of a lot about discipline. Cause I know many people were, were deterred. Like what? I'm not getting that. I'm in college. I'm not going to get up at four 30 in Ithaca, which is in upstate New York. And it's 11 degrees and walk down to a radio station. But I, I, I didn't mind that. I, I, I you know, I was a landscaper. You kind of, you have, you either have it like you're into this sort of work thing or you're not. So I wasn't bothered by all of that stuff, but eventually it was the television that, that I really liked. And you mentioned going to SUNY Binghamton. I went to SUNY Binghamton, Mooney, because I wasn't sure the TV thing was going to work. I went from Ithaca, a tiny cable station after college to a tiny cable station in Ithaca. Um, and again, I didn't, I don't know if there were 50 people who were ever watching uh, what we called cable news center seven. I would no idea who the heck was consuming it. Nobody, I'll tell you this. Nobody ever stopped me and said, I love what you're doing on cable news center. seven. <laughs> nobody. So I don't know if anybody saw it. Um, but I then moved down to Binghamton, New York, which as television markets go, was really small. It was like market 132, but it was odd because I, I don't know if these names are familiar to you, but uh, Trey Wingo and Bill Pito were both in Binghamton at the same time I was. All of us eventually ended up at ESPN. Uh, I'm the only one still there, but they had very successful careers and continue to have great success in, uh, in the sports media field. Bill is in New York. Um, I think Trey is involved with golf, with football still, with, uh, you know, with one of, the, one of those gambling houses and maybe Caesars, I forget. But all of us were together in Binghamton at the same time, which was very odd. And we all ended up after a few more stops in, in Bristol, Connecticut, the SPN together. So, yeah, I, I, went to, I went to grad school because I was the weekend sports anchor in Binghamton, New York. Um, and, and quick story, I know I'm boring you with these stories, but quick story, when, when Bill Pito, who was the weekday sports guy, left, uh, I was doing weekend sports and weekday news reporting. I figured, okay, well, here's my break. Bill's leaving. I'm going to take that job. And the news director sat me outside on a picnic bench, and the television station was literally located on the bottom floor of a nursing home. He took me out on the bench and said, hey, uh, we're, we're going to hire somebody else for the weekday position. We're, we're not going to elevate you. We like what you're doing, reporting, a whole bunch of BS. But the point was I wasn't going to get it. Um, you know, I, I reached out to my, my father and said, geez, I'm really disappointed. It didn't happen. And, he, you know, in a sense, he sort of suggested, well, why don't you – you come home now and, and, and kind of get, we'll get real about, about working, et cetera. And I said, I, let me just, let me just kind of see if this, this, I can make this work. It was a motivator. Like that was the great motivator. Everybody's got one of those moments where you get so angry and, and disgusted. You, you either take the left turn and quit or you take the right turn and become a bull and get, get more bullheaded and, and find a way out. And ultimately, I found a way out. I went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, worked there for three years, and then ended up at ESPN. Very cool. And yeah, there are moments, you know, whatever avenue we pursue in life, there are those moments. I remember having a chip on my shoulder uh, during draft day, going, how could you dare draft me where you drafted me? I That's should right. be here, here, here. And I had a dad, you know, at the time laughing at me. 
Brett. When are you going to realize life isn't fair? It doesn't matter what you think. What's done is done. You're drafted where you're drafted. Yeah. Uh, the goal is to be a big leaguer. And if you're not a big leaguer, you're going to have to get a job anyway. So why don't we quit doubting? Well, and he said to me, he said, I'll give you a little time to get to kind of mourn. And now let's get back to business. And you're right. There are certain times in all our lives, a turning point. And, and that for you seemed to be when you were sitting out on that bench, taking you for sure, getting this promotion. And all of a sudden they said, no, not so, not so fast. But you go to you go to ESPN. You talk about it at the top uh, in 1993. You call them, they call you. How'd that happen? Yeah. So when I was um, in Harrisburg, uh, and the way I, and, and one of the messages I give to everybody that asked me, like, how did you end up where you ended up and what are some of the secrets, et cetera, or what are some of the things I should be considering? You know, one of the things in our field is to try and meet as many people as you possibly can, even if even if it has nothing to do with a, a particular television market you want to end up in. Uh, when I was in Binghamton, New York, uh, I took that that sort of message from the guy, the news director, whose name is Kerry Donovan. Uh, that's etched in the back of my mind forever. I'll never forget that guy or, or his message. And look, that may have been, Brett, the best thing that ever happened to me because Lord knows I could have I gotten a little more complacent. Hey, you're the Monday through Friday guy. I mean, that kind of slows things down because you're going to get into that groove for about two or three more years. You know, at that point, that lit the fire um, underneath me. So I got in my car and started driving to cities, you know, within three, four, five hours of Binghamton, New York, just to meet people. I met a news director up in Rochester, New York. Um, there was then a TV sports uh, weekend opening in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which was from Binghamton, probably four or five hours. I'd never driven down to Harrisburg, but I sent in an application. And when I sent the application in, the sports director in Harrisburg's best friend was the news director in Rochester, who I had met already. So when they had an opening in Harrisburg, the sports director said, hey, to Steve, the news director up in Rochester, we have an opening. Have you had any people come across your desk that you think might fit this particular opening? And he said, yes, I met this Carl Ravage guy from Binghamton. You should, you should bring him down. So I got a call from Greg in Harrisburg who said, hey, you know, I know you sent your resume down. I just got off the phone with my good buddy, Steve, in Rochester. He thinks we should bring you down. Long story short, short went through that process, got the job in Harrisburg. So it had nothing to do with my awareness of anybody in Harrisburg. Thank God I drove up to Rochester, New York and met a guy who put in a good word for me. So I always share that story with aspiring broadcasters, et cetera, in any field, you know, yes, there is a component of it is who, you know, ultimately you've got to prove your worth, but it does, it does often start with who, you know, to open a door for you. And I, I took advantage of that. The, um, the ESPN part of it is, is different in the sense that when I was in Harrisburg for two years, by about year three, I realized that the main guy here, Greg, who, who ultimately called Steve and got me to Bingham to uh, Harrisburg, he was never going to leave. Like, I'm, I'm, I could do weekend sports at Harrisburg for the rest of my life if I wanted to, but I didn't want to do that. I knew I didn't want to do that. So I reached out to uh, a guy in Boston, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up, of course, uh, and I had interned there, and I said, do you have a sports agent? Because I didn't have an agent. And he said, sure, I'll give you the name of this guy. His name was Ed. God rest his soul. Ed passed away. But Ed Clevin was his name. And I reached out to Ed. He says, uh, well, Carl, I know people in Boston and at ESPN. And you're in Harrisburg. So the, the, that's not really a leap that most people will make. It's, not, it's likely not going to happen, but I'm happy to 
I'm happy to share, you know, your resume and your what was then called a resume tape. Now it's all online. I said, great. Um, he reached out to the guy at ESPN. His name was Al Jaffe. And I'm sure your brother can tell you all about the talent office and people he's come across. But Al Jaffe was the director of, of talent at that point, And he was the guy in charge of hiring everybody. So Al Jaffe looked at my tape and he got back to Ed and, and he politely said, look, you know, uh, we like some of the things about him. He's not ready to come to ESPN. Before, before we had gotten that response from ESPN, uh, my wife at the time had scheduled her own interview at a hospital in Connecticut because she was in hospital administration. So she was committed to making this trip to Connecticut, whether I ever got a, an interview at ESPN or not. Uh, I called uh, Ed and I said, hey, listen, before we had heard from ESPN, can you just let him know I'm going to be in the area on this particular day? I'd love to meet Al Jaffe. I just want to say hello, even if there's no job there. It worked for me in Rochester. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, let's wait to see what they say. When they said, you know, you're not ready, he said, hey, he's going to be up there. Would you do me a favor and just say hello to him? That day, Brett, I brought a new resume tape up there. I got in front of Al Jaffe, and all of a sudden, the tune from ESPN changed a little bit to, to the point where he called Ed and said, you know, maybe he's a little more ready than we thought. And I went through an audition process. This is where it gets really, really funny. I went through an audition process where you sat in the studio and you basically did a, a, a sports center show, a block. You did 20 minutes. Um, got a call about a week later and said, hey, good news and bad news. The good news is we really like you. The bad news is you finished second. So you're not going to get the job. And I'll be honest, at that point, Brett, I'm like tickled pink. I, I figured there's no chance I'm, I'm getting a look at ESPN, let alone now I'm number two coming out of this audition. Turns out that the guy who finished number one in the audition was named Dan Schulman. You know that name? I do know that name. Dan Schulman finished first. Schulman had a commitment to the Blue Jays and couldn't leave. They then called the number two guy and said, hey, Number one guy that we wanted is unable to commit to come to ESPN. We'd like to offer you the job. And because Dan Schulman was committed to the Blue Jays, and because I and my wife at that point said, I'm going to Connecticut for, for a job interview. You want to come see if you can get in the door and meet somebody? That, that's, that's the whole story behind how I got into ESPN in 1993. Now, that's pretty awesome. I mean, you're right. It, it, it started with that, that talk on the bench. Then you, then you go to, you know, you're meeting people. You go to Rot, and, and you never in their wildest trees. You get the, that call from Ed saying, well, they don't think you're ready. Well, you know what? Okay, that's great. They don't think I'm ready. Just get me in front of them. And then yeah. it worked out. I mean, that is, I mean, that's as cool a story as there, as there comes, especially since then where you've gone and are still there to this day. Right. Um, right. Sports Center, huge from from ninety three to oh eight. It's where we got our our uh, our sports, myself yeah. included. I was a young player at the time, but right. any, anybody growing up or or getting into you know all my teammates that were in the minor leagues, the big leagues, Sports Center was everything. Baseball tonight came along a little bit later. Uh, that was equally, you know, probably more for the baseball rats because it was exactly. all baseball. Um, we just had uh, – who did I just have? I had Linda Cohn on last week. Yeah. 
Sure. And and she was telling some stories and and I've had Steiner on and, and just the names that that have gone through there. I told Linda, I said, Linda, it's like you guys are like SNL for sports. <laughs> you know, it started with the original Berman and, and me. Right. And, and then, it, right. you know, there's there's different generations of sports center anchors. And it, I think it's cool how, how for you coming into that ESPN, that that kind of family. How were the how was the old guard? How did, were you treated coming into that to that situation in 1993? Yeah, well, it was it was small enough when I started that that we all worked in one central newsroom, which was really cool. So um, the the Charlie Steiners, the Tom Meeses, the Bob Lees, the Robin Roberts uh, sort of gave way to the Keith Olbermans and the Dan Patricks of the world. Chris Myers, uh, you know, my generation was really. Linda, Tarico, Mike Tarico, uh, Chris Fowler, Reese Davis, Steve Levy, Kenny Maine, Stuart Scott. Like that, that's sort of, and if I'm forgetting anybody, I apologize, but that, that's what I remember the core being. And Craig Kilborn and I did, did shows, you know, and, and it started out as, as two in the morning for the people on the West Coast, which was 11 p.m. You know, back then there was, there was no West Coast Bureau of ESPN, didn't exist. So, you know, we would literally go in there at six or seven at night, watch all the night games and then do our show from two to three a.m. Eastern time. And that was our lifestyle. And it was a very close knit group. And if you're lucky on the weekends, you would end up doing the 11 o'clock shows. And that was you realize like, oh, my God, it's like I'm I'm doing an 11 p.m. show. This is this is for the East Coast now instead of the West Coast. And, and as an East Coaster, you realize, well, this, this is really where the the diehard sports fan is. So I'm all into this. This is fantastic. Um, yeah. And then, then, then the rear thing happened. And I don't know if Linda got into that, but my God, was that a life altering event? Because what the rears meant was you could then wake up the next day and see the prior night sports center, which is great for the viewer. The, the problem with that was if we weren't perfect between two and 3 AM and we screwed some things up, we had to fix them after the show. So the show would end at three and hey, you know, you had a score wrong or you mispronounced the name or we had a bad graphic. We got to redo that. We had to redo that until three thirty, quarter of four. So, I mean, you, you know, you can imagine the lifestyle that we were all living at that point. Um, it was different. It was a bit sort of college in a sense, like this is an extension of uh, the way you lived in college, et cetera. So all of those things were, were present, but the people were great. I mean, there was no doubt about it. I just played golf with Berman two days ago. You know, we're still very, very good friends. It was far more of a familial atmosphere because it was smaller. You realized you literally uh, orbiting. It was taking off. I mean, ESPN from 93 until you said about 08, you know, maybe a little later, it was a rocket ship. It made a ton of money, wildly popular, and given the fact that, uh, you know, copying something is the greatest form of flattery. A lot of folks started copying it and it started to eat away a little bit at it, but it still produces incredible television. It makes a ton of money for Disney and, uh, it has evolved the same way that the other challengers have evolved. But back then it was, it was a really, really cool place to work, to live, to exist in, and so many of those, you know, men and women have gone on to such great things. You were, uh, you didn't realize at the time, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's like you playing, playing with certain teammates 
who years later, you know, are superstars and all stars and potential Hall of Famers. When you first met them, you didn't really know that they were your teammates. You know, they were your buddies. And years later, you realize, oh, my God, like that's a that's a Hall of Famer. You know, that that's a one of a kind guy. That's a guy that's now Tariko and I are very close. That's the guy that calls the Olympics and is about to do is about to do Sunday night football. You know, it's, it's wonderful because we knew each other back. Mike and I, he was in Syracuse when I was working in Bingham. We go that far back. So all of those things inside the, uh, you know, the newsroom at ESPN, years later you look back and you're like, my God, those were incredibly talented people. How much competition is there amongst best? Um. It, or was it more, or, or was it, or was it more of a team? You weren't competing against each other. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, again, this is this is very individualistic. I, I, there was no question. There were people and are people that that are in our industry who are always trying to compete against somebody because they wanted they want to have you know a, a better position. Um, I, I probably would be naive to think that outwardly or consciously. I was competitive against the people I was working with. Um, but I think that's naive because I think you always want to put yourself in the best position. Like I certainly was competitive enough to know in, in recent years, I want to do Sunday night baseball if the opportunity presents itself, but never again, this is just me. Never, never at the, at the cost to somebody else, especially if I think they deserved it or, or they were good enough, male, female, it didn't matter. So I, but I certainly sat next to people who were always looking, uh, looking down the road, looking and comparing themselves to somebody else. Uh, I'm not, I'm not making myself Pollyanna here and thinking I never did that, but that's never been my MO. I, and I think it served me really well. I go back to Binghamton, New York with a guy, uh, Bill Pito, and he'll acknowledge this after a sports center, after a sports cast he would do, he'd run and check the literally take the tape that the newscast was recorded on put it into a, uh, a player and see how good it looked, how good it sounded, so he could find another job. I know I never did that. Like my, I was never interested in, in that next job right away. Um, and I think that's how I kind of have gone through my career. Many things have come, I think, organically. Others because I expressed an interest in it. But I hope I've never done it at the expense of somebody else. And uh, I think you'd find that in clubhouses. You know there are certain guys that are interested solely in themselves or taking the place of somebody else, and some realize it will happen, like your dad with the message he gave you when you didn't get drafted in the spot you wanted to, and look what happened to you. You know, certain certain players, certain people can deal with patience. Others can't. I think I was one of those, and it's maybe proven itself 30 years later, Patience can pay off if you combine it with, uh, you know, hard work and, and skill and talent. Oh, without a doubt. And, and you mentioned the player aspect to it. Yeah, definitely. The teammates I've had over the years and I've had I've had I've had a few uh, very low percentage were those guys that that were cut. You kind of looked at like, yeah, he's kind of he's not going about it the right way. You know, most of the guys had great intentions. They were there. Hey, if it meant you losing your job. When I was an up-and-coming second baseman, it's like I'm not here to take anybody's job, but I know I want to be playing at second base in the big league somewhere. So somebody, something's going to have to give. It's not like I'm after your right. throat, but I'll tell you, I'm coming on the scene and I want to show people that I belong and I can play here. So, but it, but I did it 
with no intentions of taking the food off your table or, or moving you to another place. It's, no, I'm here, and it's my time. And just like when I was on my way out, we had young kids coming up, and I'd look at them and go, yeah, I remember that twinkle in his eye. I, re- I remember me when I was making my mark. It, and for me, when I, was, when I was coming out, I had a different perspective. It was kind of cool for me seeing a, another young kid get that opportunity to follow his dream. And that's how I look at it. I'm not saying that's that's the way everybody does, but that's how that's how I look at it. I'm interested in this, Carl. The uh, you took over, you started doing baseball tonight, 1995. And that lasted all the way up till 2018, and it was exclusively baseball. But when you've got to get ready for a show, how do you re- how do you have everything down? I mean, you've got it. You got to be on top of it everything it's not a few games like postseason we could break down the you know the world series last year because we're sitting there watching we got plenty of time to prepare you got to break down 15 games and got to be on cue and have names and have the rbis right and that was his 17th over i know a lot of it's probably teleprompter but how did you prepare personally for for those shows because you got to know everything going on right so it's funny because the last word you just brought up there was teleprompter. And the truth is what attracted me to the show was there was no teleprompter. Really? So baseball Tonight was a complete, yeah, a completely unscripted show. And your brother can certainly tell you about it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, what happened with me in SportsCenter and the opportunity to do Baseball Tonight was, in a lot of ways, SportsCenter had become rote. It had become a little bit stale because you are – sitting in a cubicle, you're writing lead-ins, and then you're getting highlights and you're reading the highlights. Baseball Tonight um, was a show that literally had no script. There, there was what we call a rundown, which was, in the eyes of the producer, the way we're going to go through the night in baseball. You're going to maybe block the American League East teams together. And if there's an update of a Mariner game, that, that's, that's literally somebody getting in my ear and saying, uh, update from Seattle, Brett Boone, free run, home run. Great. And, and he would, that, that, you know, the, the music would play. Here's the baseball tonight update. Brett Boone, free run shot. Uh, the Mariners now lead it four to one. And uh, we'll keep an eye on Seattle and Texas. Now back to the Yankee game. And you go right into the Yankee game. Um, so that really was the greatest aspect of baseball tonight that was appealing to me. There was no script. Uh, you had a rundown. And the preparation for it. As you know, the only way to prepare for baseball is to be around it every single day. Um, The challenge of a vacation was you lost what every team did for a week. You lost who got hot. You you know, you lost who got hurt. So you'd come back and you'd realize like, hmm, I I didn't know that the Orioles had just lost three of four unless you're getting up and reading it. And by the way, you're reading it for the most part in a newspaper. You know, you don't have internet yet. You don't have cell phones to the to the degree that we do now. You don't have access that we talked about. So being around it every day was, was ultimately the way that it became uh, easy to prepare for it. It's literally like a, it's like binge watching an entire season of 30 teams. Uh, you, you got your eye on them and baseball tonight during its, during its real heyday was on at 10, 10 o'clock and midnight. So you had all the East coast teams covered. Then you had all the West coast teams covered. And you're updating every play from an Angel game, every play from Seattle, every play from the Dodgers and Diamondbacks. Um, that was the that was the beauty of the show was the spontaneity of it. Um, and I've gotten to the point, and I think you know you can appreciate it. After 30 years, 
as I tell everybody, the, the more turbulence behind the scenes, the, the, the better it is. I enjoy it way more. I like when things get a little dirty uh, behind the scenes because then the goal becomes as a pilot on an airplane with turbulence, how can I, how can I minimize this? How can I make it feel to the viewer at home that everything is perfectly fine? They have no idea what's going on behind the scenes or in my ear. And that, those are the types of things now that, you know, that excite you, that excite me anyway, and motivate me. It's, it's when there are things that nobody knows going on behind the scenes that eventually they still don't know, and we just got through an entire show. And that was the that was the true beauty of baseball tonight was the spontaneity and where it goes and hold on a second we got to take another look at that play um, and it led to the franchises of you know of going going gone and web gems etc that is that are still heard today you know web gem has become a a verb if somebody makes a great play it's a web gem it's an action um, that's a really cool thing yeah that is awesome. Uh, the guests that would come on the, the, the Tim Kirchens of the world, the Jason Starks, how did they fit it to, to that? Set? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think what served me well over the years is, is getting along with all of the people that I work with, or at least, at least certainly trying to and appreciating everything that they bring to the table. Um, Peter Gammons, uh, Jason Stark, Tim Kirchens, uh, Pedro Gomez, the late Pedro Gomez, rest in peace. I mean, all of those newspaper reporters, Buster only, um, you know, that's a difficult transition for them to make, to go from being a writer to being in front of a camera. It's not easy. And, uh, you know, my job at that point was to make them as comfortable as possible, uh, coach them through it, bolster any, any confidence issues they may have, and Look, I've seen them all. I've seen Kirchin pacing the hallways, kind of memorizing what he was going to say. He, he no longer does that, but when he started, he did that. I'm sure I was there for one of Jason Stark's first shows, or Gammon's first shows. I, I've been through all of them, and they just had so much to offer, and, and offer in a different way. You know, we're talking about a show that you race through, and they're used to writing long prose. They're used to writing articles. Hey, you know that article you wrote about Cal Ripken? You need to do that in 14 seconds in a highlight, you know, in a sense. So that, that, that transition, making them feel comfortable, putting them in positions to succeed, that became another part of the job and one that I really, you know, I really loved. And every time, heck, this Sunday we had Eldon Gonzalez on, you know, a great young reporter who covers baseball on the West Coast. Buster was, uh, Buster was not with us this week, so we had Eldon on. How do we make him feel comfortable? What can we do so that he feels empowered to be himself and to do his job? And he had a great, he had a great game. He had a really good show. And I know, as he said in a text later, you know, thanks. You all make it so easy for me. That, that's, that's become another aspect to what we do or what I do and what I really enjoy about the job. How do we make them comfortable? Because we're only as good as the people, you know, around us. And I've, that's, that's been my, I've known that forever. And maybe that speaks to the question you asked about competition. Uh, my goal is to make Craig Kilborn better than he is. And if that means laughing at something that I didn't necessarily know was funny <laughs> or Linda Cohn or any of these, like I got to do it because the, the more popular they are or we are, well, the better chance for long-term success is. So making the people around you better, it only helps, only helps the whole group, including me. And that was, I still do that. I need Cohn and Eduardo 
I needed Crook and Schilling. You know, I, I needed Barry Larkin. I, any of the players, I need them. The better off they are, the better they feel, the better the show is, uh, the more popular it's going to be. If we're not enjoying ourselves and having fun, well, then the viewer isn't either, and that's a problem. I think it's interesting you mentioned those writers that come in and all now all of a sudden they're in the makeup chair. I like whenever I have one of them on the show, I like to ask, how's that makeup chair first time? And, <laughs> and they all, and they always have different answers. You know, Brett, it was different. I remember Peter because Peter was one of the originals that that went from oh, yeah. a writer to now in front of bringing it to you live. And uh, it was interesting. Yep. The answers I get. But but also something that's cool that you mentioned about that that plane going down and my job is to keep that plane flying. And I do, when I watch Carl Ravitz, cause I mean, I've been watching you as long as you've been doing it. And I always think Carl's like the quarterback. He's got to get it to all his players. And, and the end result is a good play. And, and, and it seems to me that that's what you do and whatever's going on, I got to make this keep going, you know, whatever's going on behind me in my ear, breaking news, I, I've got to be that quarterback. Do you look at yourself at all as that? Is that a good scenario? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Quarterback, point guard. I mean, those are, yeah. those are analogies yeah. that people use all the time. I do. I mean, you know, and again, whenever, whenever this whole magical run ends, if, if somebody were to ask me, which I'm sure, what, you know, what's, what are some of the most uh, gratifying parts of your job? I would hope that anybody that sat next to me uh, improved as a result of it, meaning I, I put them in a position – to succeed. And if that's, if that's something that can be said, then I win. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough not only to work with really talented people, but as you know, most really talented people, they have a stubborn streak, but they also have uh, the desire to be coached. They also have the desire to get better. That, that's why they're where they're at. And if you can put them in a position to succeed, uh, communicate to them things that you think would benefit them uh, while you're sitting next to me, then then we win. Jimmy Dykes does college basketball with me. I, I guarantee he. I'm not sure he'd use the term better, but I think he he'd use the term. Oh yeah, no, or Ra- sitting next to Ravi, uh, it, it's different. And and I bet he would say, you know, I know that that I've changed a lot, and I think he'll say for the better. So the goal is to get everybody on that program to be the best they can be. Um, I don't know. At one point, Booney, uh, you know, we counted about 70 different just baseball analysts that I've worked with over the years. And, and it's just, a, it's a Ray Knight, Mike McFarland, Roy Smalley. You know, the, the, the list is, is an incredibly eclectic list. It wasn't just me, Peter, and Harold Reynolds, although a lot of people remember those years as the best years. There have been so many different people that have sat on the set of baseball tonight, including six current managers, you know, your brother included, which still provides, I think, a a huge advantage having seen them in those situations and, and got to know them as people, as opposed to just managers. It serves, it serves ESPN. Well, it certainly serves me. Well, it gives a lot of credibility um, and there's trust there. And I think, Ultimately, in, in our side of, of the business, you've got to have the trust of the people you, that you're covering. Otherwise, you've got nowhere to go. You're going to spin your wheels in quicksand. The Sports Center was the only game in town for a long time. Uh, NFL, Network yeah. comes, uh, NFL Network comes along. MLB Network comes along. Uh, just our changing uh, technology with our smartphones. How did that change ESPN to the current day? 
Uh, well, I think it forced us to figure out exactly how we're going to appeal to the next generation, which means uh, Instagram, Snapchat, all those things. Um, we're, we're certainly not just a linear television network anymore. I mean, everything can be consumed online. Um, look, since I was there, we went from ESPN television into ESPN2 and ESPN News. We had an ESPN telephone. We had ESPN restaurants. Um, you know, we now we, we continue to have relationships with different conferences, uh, it, it forces you to, to stay ahead of the curve. And all of those technologies that people use now to consume sports, we have to be on those platforms. Um, and if it becomes one of those entities, which I've read down the road, it's certainly going to be something that perhaps you'll be able to pay for as opposed to paying for cable because the cable world has changed so dramatically that you can get ESPN on a variety of platforms including its own just by getting and downloading you know the espn app etc so it's it's forced you to stay ahead of the curve to sign long-term deals with conferences etc and leagues um because what has happened with all of this technology um and binge watching on hulu and netflix and hbo uh the only the only real frontier is breaking whether it's breaking news or live sports and thankfully, ESPN was at the forefront of live sports and will continue to be for a long, long time. So as long as there's live sports, there will be an ESPN and an ESPN2, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it certainly forced us to look at the, at the landscape differently, but there's a lot of really, really, really smart people who are looking 5, 10, 15 years down the road, and it's a comfortable place to be as an employee. That's for sure. 2003 to the Little League World Series. It's always interesting to me to watch that. Uh, how do you think when you're when you're working the the Little League World Series and you, and you bring an ex big league player down there, do they seem to enjoy it more? I mean, I, we all have great memories from our Little League days, but take take me on the set in, in Williamsport, a, a place that I didn't make. I got to the state finals, never got to Williamsport, but it, as a kid. And I'm sure you went through the same thing. That, that dream was on your Little League team. And they, they picked the All-Stars as, wow, we're going to Little League World Series if we win 150 games in a row. Never, right. it, it doesn't work well, out for many people, but it seems like a really no. unique experience. Yeah, the difference between you and I was I was never on an All-Star team. And I never <laughs> even thought about or knew about it. But I used to watch it. I remember ABC's Wide World of Sports would always cover the Little League World Series and um, just the, just the broadcasters, uh, who did it, you know, Brent Musburger was there for a long time. Um, you know, you, you, I realized, I realized early on in my career that that was one of those bucket list events because it appeals to so many people. Uh, it's my favorite baseball event to cover. And I cover the major league world series, the college world series and the little league world series. Uh, it's not close. And, and, and the reasons are, are less about the actual game of baseball and more about the kids that are involved with it, uh, the people that watch it, the different ages that watch it. Uh, and, yes, we, we now have the Little League Classic. And when you see those players come to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, uh, that, that is for a baseball player. It doesn't matter the age. You realize, you know, you're at, you're at Augusta. You know, you're at Daytona. You're, you're at uh, – you're at uh, Churchill Downs. You're going to one of those places where you've read about it, you've seen it, and oh my God, now we're here and look at it. It actually lives up to what you expected. It, it, it in a lot of ways exceeds the expectations, whether it's Terry Francona or all of the Hall of Famers, Nomar Garcia Parra, 
anybody that's ever been there has the same emotional, visceral reaction. I can't believe I'm here. It's better than I thought. And, uh, you know, on a, on a personal level, we cover it. And it's that same family atmosphere for the people that go. And many of the camera folks and the directors and the people behind the scenes, they want on that assignment. You're in the same place for about a week and a half, two weeks. Um, it's an incredible family environment. It's one of those events that you know is special. Every year is different. Um, so th- th- there's, nothing, there's nothing that matches to me the Little League World Series for, for more reasons than just the Major League Baseball or the College World Series. It, it, it literally, to me, checks every single box of what makes baseball such a great sport. You mentioned you've done the College World Series, Omaha, Nebraska, another place I'd never made it, my USC Trojans. Uh, we choked a couple times, didn't make it there. But in 2013, uh, you start doing play-by-play. And how is that adjustment going from the anchor to play-by-play? What's that preparation like? Is, is, was it a big transition for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the difference there is, you know, and, uh, and the, the, the benefit of baseball tonight was I sat next to analysts. So I always had, you know, one or two analysts sitting next to me. You get into a booth and you have one or two analysts sitting next to you. So I had been, I had been really prepared for that. And the same, the same conversational style that I had in the studio, uh, I bring, you know, I bring to the booth. And, and look, I'm sure there are a lot of people who'd prefer straight play-by-play. I, I never went to a baseball game and just focused on every single pitch as a, as a viewer, as a fan. I sat there, and whether I was there with friends, my wife, uh, my father, you're not, I'm not going to spend three hours focused on the defensive positioning of Denny Doyle at second base. Like, I'm not going to do that. But we are going to talk about, uh, you know, how things are at home. We're going to talk about movies restaurants, the weather, we're going to just go off in a variety of directions. And when there is an important part of that game, and I'm not dismissing the pitcher versus batter import every pitch, but, you know, when you have runners at second and third in a one-run game and it's a seventh inning, we're not going to talk about the pizza we had. We're going to kind of dial in on the game. So that's the style that I bring um, to to the game, and I think that helped. The preparation is different because you're focused on two teams, you know, and the more you know about each player, the backstory of each player, uh, you don't need that and you, you really don't benefit from it on Sports Center or baseball tonight because there's not enough time. You're doing a game with two teams. That's where you've got to drill down on where the guys came from, where they go to school, what's their background, their family background, uh, how they do in the minors, you know, who were their teammates, all, all those things because there's a lot more storytelling that goes on. But, but again, I benefited greatly from having analysts on the set during baseball tonight, because I just basically moved that particular dynamic from the studio to a ballpark. 2020 hits, uh, the pandemic, everything gets shut down. NBA's done. Spring training stops. March madness shut down. Um, really different. I mean, you know, I guess for my life, 9-11 obviously was a huge, obviously an enormous event for the country, and we all went through that. But all of a sudden, we're just shutting down sports. You're ESPN. This is your whole life. Where were you when you got the yeah, word that, oh, we're, we're shutting everything down? So, you know, the, the pandemic, 
Brett, of course, led to the Korean Baseball Organization. You remember the KBO I, at all? Well, oh, believe me, I was going there because I was watching you. And I kid about it, the Korean Baseball League. But there was nothing else to watch. And I remember right. you and so Eduardo, means- you're doing it from your house. Right. So we, we do the KBO. The pandemic is, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened in our lifetime, certainly. Um, we had we had a ESPN technical crew come to our house and try to figure out how in the world we are going to be able to broadcast a baseball game being played in Korea. While I'm sitting in my in my family room in Avon, Connecticut, and Eduardo is going to do the game from Miami, Florida. How is this? How in the world is this going to work? And by the way, we don't we don't even know what time this thing is going to happen. All we know is, hey, we're hearing rumors that we might be doing the KBO. At that point, like you said, we have no other sport to cover. So sure, that sounds great. I assume it's going to be at seven at night, like all sports are. Never, never at that point had considered like, well, what the hell time is this going to be on? Short short story there, though. We had we had a computer, literally a laptop. That said, ESPN 001, and I still have it. I have, I have that first live-from-home kit, which is what we called it, LFH, live-from-home kit that was used to broadcast KBO baseball games. Uh, there was, uh, honest to God, we, we ran a plug over the roof of our house to get from an outlet in a kitchen to where it needed to be. I mean, it literally ran over the roof of our house. Uh, and then came word from our boss, so the weekend games will start at 3.30 in the morning, and the weekday games are going to start at 5.30 in the morning. So you've got to get up at 3.30 in the morning to turn your equipment on to make sure all of this is going to somehow work. Um, and and that, was, that was the pandemic for us. It was, it was literally baseball, you know, seven, seven mornings a week. Uh, and I'm not talking about 9 a.m. I'm talking about 4 and 5 in the morning. Uh, and the best, you know, the, the best part of the whole KBO or one of the best stories that I have from that was game one, game one of the KBO. First one we're ever going to do. We're, we're on our live from home kits. I have my headset on the producer who, again, is in a separate location. He's in Bristol, Connecticut, wearing a, a mask with a with a control room of probably three or four or five people. Um, we get we get a call. The game is at five twenty five. AM. We get a call around 4:30. It, it's raining. It's raining in Geichek. <laughs> well, what does that mean? It, it, well, it, the game may be rained out, so we're going to think about this. We're going to pivot to another game if that one gets rained out. So think about it. You're doing a sport where you know no one. I mean, literally, you don't know a soul. The night before, you've printed out rosters for the game you're supposed to do. And 40 minutes before that game is supposed to start, you find out you're not doing that game. You're going to call the SK Wyverns uh, game, and they're taking on the Lotte Giants. And, again, you could use any two, two teams. I don't know the two we're supposed to do, and now you're going to introduce two new teams I don't even have rosters of. I don't even have – I have no idea. I said, but, again, the turbulence and all that stuff, Great. Uh, no one at home knows, so sure, we'll, we'll go with that. I, I left my little room to go to a printer to print out rosters of the two new teams at around 5.15. The paper in the printer gets jammed. At 
in the morning, I'm walking back into where I have my setup, and I hear Eduardo Perez say, good morning and welcome to the KBO. And I said, using an expletive, I'm like, oh, my God, that's supposed to be me. The game is starting. I'm walking back into my room with two rosters of teams I don't know anything about, and I missed the, I missed the opening. Like, I wasn't there. I was walking through my house. That's the, that's the absurdity and the bizarreness of the beginning of the KBO. I'm hearing Eduardo through my headset before I re-enter the room. Welcome to the KBO on ESPN. How about and, that? And he's wondering where you are. <laughs> he's, oh, he's panicking. He is more, he's panicking. How, where is he? Because he, yeah. you know, the way these Zoom things work, he can see that my desk is empty. Like he, he, Ravi's not back, so I'm saying hello. And that's how the KBO on ESPN got underway. Oh. Because I'll tell you, as much as I joke about it, <clears throat> at that time, I tuned in. I watched some games. Of course. And I think it was important for people. I mean, not to compare I, it to, to not, I'm not comparing it to 9-11. That was a different ball game. That's something in our backyard. Uh, but as players, you know, and as a player at the, at the time that happened, when we had our meetings and, you know, there were certain uh, certain groups that were saying, oh, we shouldn't play out of respect. But the overwhelming sentiment in those player only meetings was this is what we do. We need to go on and, and not yeah. go, you know, retire for the season. Maybe we can be a little part of help healing this help heal yeah. this country. So as much as I joke about the KBO, I really think in a way it gave sports fans an outlet. And and as goofy as that first day started, you know, in the end, it's like, well, maybe I was a part of getting guys, getting, getting those sports crazy people through something in life. So I, I in the end, I as much as I joke about it, I think it was a really cool and a good thing. We do this, look, we do the same thing. And, and I, I would say that the, the most uh, – often heard remark about the KBO was gratitude. You know, literally, thank you for, for doing that because there was nothing about our lives at that point that was normal. You know, there was shortages on items in, in stores. Uh, you're not seeing anybody. You're, you're trying to figure out, am I ever going to go back to work again? People are very sick. Worse, people are dying. And people were grateful um, to, to wake up you know, at seven in the morning on the East Coast and, and literally have, again, what happens with Little League is for about 12 days, you, you have this reliability. It's something you can count on at night. I'm going to watch the Little League World Series. I can't wait. It's fun. We needed something fun. We needed a diversion. And every morning at this ridiculous hour when your day is starting and you're really not looking forward to it because you don't really know how it's going to unfold, but we're going to have breakfast together as a family. We have the ability to watch some baseball and hear some voices that we're familiar with. It was very reassuring. And I, I know, and I heard from a lot, I mean, a lot of people, I was shocked because when you're up in the middle of the night doing that game, similar to the, the first part of my story about Ithaca, New York, right. I don't know who in the world is watching this. Same thing with the KBO. We have no idea. And it may, it may be in our own minds more people than actually were doing it, but I heard from a lot who were who were really grateful to have something that 
reminded them of how it was pre-pandemic, meaning, yes, sports. We can sit around and talk about uh, teams. And, you, you know, believe it or not, they, they started to have favorite teams and they started to have favorite mascots. It, it did work that way, and it was a, it was an incredibly pleasant surprise when we first started it. i be honest, we, we had no idea, but I, I do agree with you. Uh, it turned out to be something that, in the end, was was really positive in the darkest of times. Was it weird when you came back? And it wasn't like an overnight comeback either. I mean, 20, 2021, from what I heard, it was pretty pretty locked down as far as players really kept themselves in the clubhouse. Not like the game you've known for the last thirty years, where you go to you go to Anaheim Stadium tonight. You're walking on the field. You're interacting with people. I think it was a slow rollout. Uh, as far as the accessibility to the players, um, was it was it weird for you after that 2020, 2021, finally? Now, nowadays, I think it's finally getting back to normal. But what was that process for you coming back into the game after it being completely shut down? Yeah, so we went from KBO to a full year doing games in a studio. But we never anywhere uh, I would drive it was a step forward but it clearly wasn't back in as you were you were able to access players managers etc we did a full year you know on zoom uh, Mondays and Wednesdays two games a week and th- that was really hard calling the games off the monitor is it certainly puts you at a disadvantage relative to being there but I will say um, having done the golf that I talked to you about for years golf is all I was used to it. I was comfortable with it. I wasn't by by a Zoom call or, or doing it over over the screens. But that that's also not saying I'd much prefer to be in the stadium, which which I would, and I, I am again. Um, this year feels very normal. It really does. Um, I, I'd say that. I'd say the the transition for me was the College World Series uh, two years ago when Mississippi State won it. COVID was still very much part of the conversation, and yet you wouldn't necessarily know it in Omaha that COVID was still part of the conversation. And certainly in the hotel we stayed in, we shared the same hotel as Mississippi State. There were a lot of people in the lobby. You know, ultimately what happened was that the, the biggest transition for me was the College World Series of 2022, 20, I think, uh, 21, when Mississippi State won it. Because COVID was still very much part of our, of our lives. And yet in the hotel we stayed in, we shared with Mississippi State. You, you wouldn't know it. Uh, TD Ameritrade at that point had a lot of folks in it. Now Charles Schwab, but it was TD Ameritrade. That that to me felt a little more normal. We went through two years of doing games uh, in a studio. You know, KBO was then followed by an entire season of Major League Baseball, where I would drive from my home to Bristol Studios and call the game there. On occasion, Tim Kirkshen would join me. Uh, more often than not, I would sit in a room by myself calling Major League games with Tim and Eduardo in different locations. So. It was it was far from normal. Uh, the College World Series that year was significant, and then certainly this year feels feels real you know feels really close to normal, especially 
given the ballparks are full, given the attitude of the players, given the access that you have to managers and players, there's still that gray area where, you know, masks are being worn inside clubhouses. Some managers will tell you it's okay. You can take it off if you're comfortable. Leave it on if you're comfortable. So it hasn't left us, Booney, but it's certainly, it's certainly different, you know, and you go through a, a World Series where you're playing in front of nobody, a Major League World Series, it's different. Uh, the Little League World Series a few years ago had no fans. It was it was just depressing. And now all of that stuff has thankfully um, been, been put on the back burner. Let's hope it stays there because sports, but certainly baseball, is way better when there are people in the seats and we're at the games with access to the players and the managers, et cetera. Absolutely. I don't know if you know this. I, I got a funny story for you. Early 2000s, we had a uh, videographer for the Seattle Mariners. His name was Carl. And I kind of coined, coined the phrase. I started uh, one day, I said, as I used to come in between it, that's the, the video room is right off in Seattle. Right after you get out of the dugout, there's a little video room off to the side. Back then, you know, we had the we had the CDs that we'd put in and watch our, you know, our whatever was recorded that last. Hey, Carl, I want to see that last, uh, that three-two pitch. Show it to me. Show it to me. And I'm right there. So as soon as that inning ends, I mean, I'm a I'm a five-second jog to taking my position. But his name was Carl, and I used to your your name was always in my mind. So I started calling him Ravage. <laughs> and, and he's like, Brett, my name isn't Ravage. I said, Carl Ravage, ESPN, you're Ravage. And he just, you know, he was, Carl was a good guy. He's, he's since passed away, but he started to go by the name Ravage. And, and I, you know, I had, a, I had a, I had a bit of a personality, as you know, when I was a player yeah. and I, I was pretty demanding, especially during the game, but also in a, in a very, good way not taking myself too serious but i'd be in the middle you know I'd, I'd just strike out and i'd say damn it ravage where are you oh booty i'm right here what, what what pitch do you want you want the one one you want the one two i said i want all three of them and get it done now <laughs> ravage i'll tell That's you hilarious. what it went through the clubhouse so we got edgar martinez coming down hey ravage you got my my tonight <laughs> It was hilarious, and nobody from the outside really knew what was going on. But all the players would call Carl Ravage, and he never went That's by Carl hilarious. anymore. No one would ever call him Carl. Uh, I don't oh know God. if he really got out of that clubhouse. That was a little bit of a tribute to you. I thought it was a cool story. That's and fabulous. I, thought, I, never heard, I never heard that. That's yeah. a great story. I never heard that story, and I, and I love that team. I, you know, I know a lot of the folks from that team. That's, I never heard that story. That's, that's incredible. And, and then it, Lou never said it. I never heard it from the manager either. Oh, Skip, what a what a piece of work. What a piece of work. Huh. And to the point where I'm finding a tough time right now coming up with Carl's last name because I, I never called him by it. It was always <laughs> – and I never even called him Carl. It was just Ravage. Ravage, give me the day. It was, it was great. Uh, beautiful. On a serious note, 1998, uh, you, had a, you had a health event. You had a heart attack. It kind of puts life into perspective, I would think. Uh, take me through that year, and and uh, did it change your perspective on on things that are really important? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that changed everything. I, I think, you know, I mentioned the hours I used to work, uh, when you work those hours, and you're 
hanging out with, as I said, family members. You, you tend to eat dinners late at night, and uh, there was probably some stress and anxiety associated with it. You didn't sleep. I didn't sleep much. And, I, and I, look, I, I told you, I played all the runaround sports. So I was more of a kid that would, and, and at that stage, I, I would go out and play play a game. I'd play basketball, or I would I would do something, play tennis. I, I'd do something athletic and think, all right, I'm, I'm still in decent shape, and I was – you know, I was lying to myself. I was not a regular exerciser at all. Uh, in fact, I, I would be asked to go for a run, and I'd be like, why would I do that? You know, I'm going to go play paddle ball tonight, so that's going to be my exercise, which, you know, years later, I find, you know, sure, paddle ball, pickleball, tennis, whatever those things are, they're a great compliment. But uh, it absolutely changed uh, my life when it comes to day-to-day exercise, which is is a religion now. I mean, I, that's, I, I'm committed to that and I'm committed to eating a lot differently and better. So yeah, it, it, it changed, it changed life that way. It certainly changed my perspective on life. You know, my son was five years old at the time. That was a, that was a difficult period to realize, like, I have a responsibility here. I gotta, I gotta get my stuff, stuff right. So it was a tap on the shoulder. I was fortunate enough to have survived it and uh, knock on wood, haven't had any incidents since then and and thanks to the great doctors and the right care and a doting wife who makes sure I eat right now um it's it's been good but yes that was that was a major game changer and for somebody that considers himself not to take a term away from Lou Gehrig but one of the luckiest people on earth that was another example of of really good fortune for sure we'll do a little rapid fire and and I'll lift you out of here uh just a just a, a few words about about each guy I'm about to mention. Sure, Chris Berman, uh, hilarious, funny uh, role model, and uh, and an ESPN icon. One of my favorites, Charlie Steiner. Yeah, Charlie, as as, uh, as fortunate a guy and as uh, talented as a guy who has been able to call two iconic franchises on the radio. The Yankees and the Dodgers, always, always friendly and, uh, you know, a great ear when you needed some, some advice. Dan Patrick. Love Dan Patrick. Think he handled SportsCenter as well as anybody and thought that the Dan and Keith show was as good a SportsCenter as you could imagine. He, he was a terrific partner for Olbermann, who I thought was the most talented person to ever do SportsCenter. Greg Kilborn. Uh, hilariously funny, walked into the news director's office or our boss probably two weeks after starting with Craig Kilborn and said, I don't understand any of this. This isn't what I signed up for. I don't even think he likes sports. Steve Anderson was that guy who I still see, uh, on a, on a fairly regular, although infrequent basis. And he said, be patient. Thank God. He said, be patient. Thank God. I listened. Uh, Kilborn was a huge cult following uh, kind of guy and a huge personality and the same way there was the odd couple we were the odd couple I was the straight man he was the funny guy and last uh, lost him recently Stuart Scott yeah so Stuart and I I mean uh, Stuart's uh, daughter and my son grew up at the same time I remember Stuart as much for being on the sidelines of watching our kids play soccer as I do sitting next to him on a sports center set and the truth was, I did a lot of shows with Stewart, but I wasn't often paired with Stewart because I went off to do the Baseball Tonight show. Um, but Stewart tapped into something that no one else has been able to tap into 
since then, uh, or in my opinion, before then, because SportsCenter was very popular. He came in and introduced an entire new uh, language to it. And all of so many of the things that he coined and phrases still are relevant today. Um, great guy, uh, wonderful father, super person, energetic, and uh, we, we, we all we all suffered the void that that his light, you know, when it went out, left for all of us. Carl Ravitch, it's been a pleasure. Uh, congratulations on almost thirty years in the game. What are the true? In, in my opinion, one of the true icons of, of ESPN. I grew up with you, watching you, uh, you know, talk about my highlights once in a while. It was always fun to hear you talk if I hit a homer or something. But, no, on, right. a, on a serious note, uh, it, it was a pleasure. All the best. Uh, 2022, you're off doing Sunday Night Baseball. I'll be listening. I'll be watching. Tell Eduardo hello. And uh, best of luck going forward, man. Thanks for having or thanks for coming on the show. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. And that's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.